Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Here's your host, Tyler Wagner. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Today we have Frank King, your TEDx coach. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much. Of course. <laughs> delighted, delighted to be on here. Yeah, grateful to have you all, man. Um, so to start off, um, obviously, you know, you help people land TEDx talks, but I want to start, I, I kind of like to do a full timeline. So from younger, like, uh, like not, not from conception, but from maybe, uh, uh, <laughs> from like elementary school in a sense to, to now. So when you were a kid, what did you think you would be doing? Is it anything of the sort that you are doing with helping people, um, become a TEDx speaker? Uh, well, um, yes and no. Um, I told my first joke in the fourth grade. The kids laughed. The teacher was hysterical. And I thought, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. Twelfth grade, I did a talent show. Nobody had ever done stand-up before, and I won. Of course, you're competing with, you know, accordion players and folk dancers. So not really a tough competition. And then my mom made me go to college, UNC Chapel Hill. I said, I want to be a comedian. She goes, I don't care what you do when you graduate, but you're going to have a college degree. I, you can be a goat herder for all I care you're going to be a goat herder with a degree. <laughs> so I got a degree in political science and one in labor management relations, which are completely useless anyway. The, but you know, a good liberal arts education never hurt anybody. Mm -hmm. And they moved to San Diego with my high school, college girlfriend. And by chance, the comedy store had a branch there in La Jolla. And mm -hmm. back then it was just the beginning of the comedy boom. They had three open mic nights a week. They had two shows on Saturday and it got to where they're like three shows on Friday. I mean, it was just comedy was booming. This is um, 84, um, early 85. And then end of 85, I said to my girlfriend, I got 10 weeks booked on the road in comedy clubs. I'm going on the road to be a stand up comedian professionally. You want to come along? I'm figuring she'd go, oh, hell no. Uh, and she goes, yeah. So we were on the road. I, me doing comedy. She just along for the ride for two thousand six hundred twenty-nine nights in a row, nonstop, seven years and change. Beer bars, pool halls, honky tonks, comedy clubs as well. But a lot of horrible one-nighters. People screaming, "Tell us some jokes we can dance to." <laughs> Tell us some jokes we can dance to. <laughs> yeah, here, here comes a slow one. You can slow dance. Anyway. <laughs> So that came to an end when I got a job in radio in my old hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina, the local FM rock station. They were hiring comics back in the mid 90s to be, you know, co-hosts on morning shows. So I got one of those gigs. Uh, I took a number one morning show. 18 months, I drove it to number six and got fired, of course. Uh, a friend of mine goes, you didn't just drive that in the ground. You drove that some bitch into Middle Earth. Oh. Um, and so... After that was done, the comedy club thing was beginning to fade. And I thought, you know, I got a clean act. I bet I could do corporate, you know, after after dinner, after lunch at the conference. Sure enough, and it pays by a factor of 10 or 20 times better than doing club comedy. And so I made the jump. To, and that was great till about 2008. High of the recession. Business drops off 80%. Lost everything in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Mm-hmm literally uh spoiler alert for the audience i did not pull the trigger mm -hmm. um the uh i always get a nervous <laughs> laugh should we be laughing at that i know i was uh, like I, I wasn't sure <laughs> but yeah, no we, exactly. we've, we've talked before so i do want to dive into that then but i'll let you i'll let you keep going with timeline so um when when i went back to when bookings began to crop up again they said, Frank Lou, we love you. We can't pay you just to be funny. You got to teach our audience something. So I thought, what the hell do I have to teach anybody? And then I began to look around. My family has something called generational depression and suicide runs in the family. And I mean, my entire mother's family is nuttier than a squirrel turd. So I thought, I've got the family history. I've got my personal history. I just need to learn something about suicide prevention. I can keynote on suicide prevention. And so when I thought, well, how the hell am I going to rebrand from a funny speaker to a speaker who's funny? And my wife goes, do a TEDx. I said, what's a TEDx? And just by chance, I got an invitation that week by email saying, hey, we'd like you to apply for the TEDx Vancouver, BC. I sent it in. They picked me. And so that was my first. And I came out on stage at age 56 in 2014. I'd never told anybody I was depressed and suicidal. And I came out on stage as depressed and suicidal 
And I have something called chronic suicidal ideation, which means for me and people like me in my tribe, suicide's always an option on the menu, problems large and small as a solution. And when I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden, get it fixed, buy a new one, just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal ideation. And it's sort of my superpower actually. Um, because most suicides are not about wanting to die. Most suicides are about wanting to end the pain. And because I know I could end the pain at any moment, I can stand a great deal of it. So as somebody, a friend mm. of mine with the same condition said, you know, if it weren't for my chronic suicidal ideation, I'd have killed myself a long time ago. <laughs> Ironic, but true. Um, so, and I had some other speeches I was doing keynotes, but 2018, January 1st, I looked around at everybody in my town in the Chamber of Commerce who was really successful. And I thought, what do they have in common? And it hit me. They all do one thing extremely well. I thought, all right, screw it. I'm going to do as they say in the speaking business, pick a lane, suicide prevention speaking. And that's all I'm going to market, the suicide prevention speaking. I'm going to become that guy. And, and then I pick several markets that have high rates of suicide, dentists, veterinarians, physicians, construction, and I only market to them. I don't market to everybody. I just market to that, those groups because they, they have meetings, they have money, they use outside speakers, and they really want to hear what I've got to say to bring the suicide rate down. So I've been able to triple my fee once I picked a lane, because uh, you know, picking a lane means you give up the other lanes, yeah. but it, it really worked out in my favor between the picking a lane and becoming the mental health comedian I've bumped my fee three times, I think, since January 1st, 2018, um, because there aren't, a whole lot, there aren't a whole lot of men, especially non-clinicians who speak on suicide prevention and tell their story. Because, you know, guys, big boys don't cry. They don't whine. They don't complain. They don't share yeah. anything emotional. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm, so, I'm like a unicorn in the mental health business because uh, I go in and I just bear it all. Mm -hmm. um, Matter of fact, I posted on YouTube the other, or LinkedIn the other morning. I got a call from a speakers bureau in late December. And they said, would you fly to Florida, which has no statewide mask mandate, in the middle of a pandemic to do a keynote? And I said to the guy, um, I'm suicidal. What the hell do I care? <laughs> and so I got on the plane. And last week, March 3rd, I did my keynote. I flew home. You know, I mean, I wore my mask. I got, I got some nice K-95s for the plane because, you know, you're yeah. kind of close quarters. Um, but, yeah, so it, it's, it's really – what I tell my TEDx coaching clients is what you want is no longer to be a commodity. When they come looking for a suicide prevention speaker, I want them looking for me, not just mm -hmm. any random suicide – and that's my goal for my clients is when they come looking for whatever topic expert you are, that they don't just you know do a search and pick the first one that's got the best price. They come looking for you, so you're no longer a commodity. Mm -hmm. And I've been working very hard to, you know, to develop. And this morning I had a chat with a woman in. Where was she? Uh, she works for a greeting card company. They just formed a parents group, sort of peer support, family to family support, for the pandemic. Because all parents pretty much all of them have the same set of problems. Kids are at home, maybe their grandparents are there. You know, when are they going back? And so they formed this support group and asked if I would speak. And I go, well, where'd you find me? She goes, well, I went out on the internet. <laughs> you know, mental health, oh, what the heck, comedian. And bang, son of a gun, there you were. And so mm. she, she, I'm the only one, she looked at a few other speakers, but between the TEDx talks and the comedy, and, and she liked sort of my philosophy, my speaking style. That's why she contacted me and we did a Zoom this morning to talk about the event. And I, I booked it. It's going to be March, no, May 20, March 21st, I think it is. Coming mm -hmm. right up. Uh, virtual, of course. Yeah. But, but again, people finally, every now and then, somebody comes looking for me instead of just a random speaker. 100%. So that, that's the goal. I'm And I just booked my sixth TED Talk. It'll be in June. Oh, amazing. So that, that doesn't hurt. And it also doesn't hurt when I'm, you know, clients are, what qualifies you to teach TEDx talks? Well, I've been chosen eight <laughs> times. Um, I had to turn two down because I had a calendar conflict. I mean, let's, let's fucking face it. I've turned down more TEDx talks than most people get. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to put it right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you gotta, you know, in, in business every now and then you gotta draw a set of balls and just, you know, just say it it's out. Like some, 
Yeah, somebody said to me, what, what qualifies you to speak on suicide prevention? I said, I know what the fucking barrel of my gun tastes like. And man, they step, they take a step back like it's somehow yeah. contagious. Um, and it runs in my family. And, you know, a comedian is a good choice because they call it comic relief for a reason. You know, I'm, we're talking about death and dying and morbidity and mortality. And at mm. least I can lighten it up a little bit along with funny personal stories. A hundred percent. So let me, a few questions there. So one, um, with the, uh, I forget what you called it, but uh, where, where suicide's always an option. Like, what is it? Is it literally like, ev not everything, but is it always an option? Literally, like you always are like, oh, I could do that. Or is it kind of just like a fleeting thought? You, you know what I mean? Anytime there's any stress or strain, it's coping mechanism. You know, oh, okay. car broke down or something else happens. You know, my wife yells at me, well, screw it. I'll just fucking kill myself. Um, hmm. Not a serious thought. It's, and the other thing I have is called major depressive disorder. And it, it's not situational. I've been most depressed at some of the best times in my life. What it is, is it's a cycle, like a wheel with a flat spot. Every now and then the flat spot hits the bottom. And I go down for a day or so and then flatten out and then come back on the third day. By the fourth day, I'm, you know, back to pretty much flying level. Yeah. And I know that. Um, for for people who have that it can last anywhere from three days to three weeks i'm lucky it only lasts three days mm -hmm. um but yeah there's nothing to do with, and a situation can trigger it but it's generally not situational which is what worries me about the pandemic is you got all these neuro normal neurotypical people who've never been depressed and and they got no idea how come they can't get out of bed in the morning and you know what it's probably because they're situationally depressed they're depressed over the situation in the world the uncertainty of it all yeah. So I do podcasts all the time teaching neuronormal people the techniques that mentally ill people use to get out of bed in the morning. Because for me and my tribe, every day is uncertain, regardless of what's happening elsewhere in the world, pandemic or no. So you have to have systems in place. You have to control the things you can't control. You have to have a routine. Otherwise, you wouldn't get out of bed. Just lie in bed and binge watch, you know, the Queen's Gambit or yeah. whatever. Kick an ass <laughs> on Netflix. So that, that's that's what I do. And that's, you know, then, then my business coach said to me, she wanted to do a TEDx and I wanted a business coach. She goes, I can't afford a TEDx. And I said, I can't afford a business coach. So we coach each other. Yeah, there you go. And, and she said, no, Frank, I know you've been teaching people to do the TEDx for free and that's got to fucking stop. Um, you need a website and you need to start charging a lot of money for that because a lot of people want those things. And so I, I charge a healthy amount mm -hmm. and, and I've got 21, maybe 22 clients right now. Mm -hmm. um, if you if you are, let's say, an author and listening, and you, you thought, I always want to do a TED Talk. Now I believe it's probably the best time Tyler, to apply, and here's why. A lot of people I talk to don't think TEDx Talks are happening. I've got a list of a dozen and a half application links. Windows are open. They're waiting for applications. Two, the last two clients of mine that got TEDx, the TEDx event's only gonna have seven speakers. Normally they have 12, which tells me they're having trouble finding 12 good ideas worth spreading. So I mean, if you're mm. thinking about doing a TEDx, whether you hire me or not, get off your fanny and start applying for TEDx's all over the place. Cause I have a feeling this may be the best time in history because the competition may be a lot slimmer yeah. than normal. That makes sense. Now, what have you seen? Um... Let's let's yeah let's talk about the TEDx and then we'll we'll come back around for for TEDx what like without giving all the secrets away but like what have you seen work like uh, for for your clients like what are some success stories that you that yeah well the average TEDx non pandemic times we're getting two hundred applications TEDx Seattle got six hundred applications so whatever you put in those first boxes on that application damn well better be interesting. You know, you need to grab them by the lapels and not let them go till they've read most of your application. And for example, my fifth TEDx talk was called, um, hang on, somebody called in. My, for example, my fifth TEDx talk, the title was Mental Health and the Orgasm, Treat Your Depression Single-Handedly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I applied 16 times. I knew not every, most every TEDx committee would go no fucking way. But I also knew that anything that controversial, some TEDx committee, it'd be the best thing they ever heard. And sure enough, 
I got a phone call from number 16. They said, uh, yeah, we'd like you to do the TEDx. I said, you mean audition? They go, no, fucking audition. You're coming up. You got, you got the gig. So that tells me that whatever you put on that application, it really needs to stand out. I've got a client who had a, an extremely aggressive form of breast cancer, and she had a double mastectomy, five years clean of cancer right now, survived. And I was having dinner with her in Florida because she didn't live far from where I was working, doing the speech. And she goes, yeah, um, in passing, she goes, you know, cancer saved my life. Okay, stop right there. That's the title of your TEDx pitch. Cancer saved my life. It's counterintuitive. If I see that sentence, I'm reading whatever comes next. I got to find out how that happened. How, yeah. how in the world could cancer? So I recommend that you make it the title, subtitle, or your answers, especially up up high on the application. They are counterintuitive. They're you know maybe some humor. Um, they got something. Got a client who has had had several had a bariatric two bariatric surgeries, one banding and one bypass, I guess, because he got he was overweight. Had his stomach banded or whatever they do. Lost the weight, put it back on, went back in and had the bypass. Um, and the premise of his talk is, is nobody tells you anything about the mental impact or effects of the surgery. You lose the weight, but you need some serious, you know, mental work to keep the weight off. Because in your mind, you said you're still a, an overweight person who's had a, you know, a bypass or a banding. And I said, oh, I get it. Um, with with the, this sort of weight loss, um, they're looking at the they're they're looking at the wrong organ. It's not the stomach, it's the brain that you need to be concerned with. Because it's your mindset that gets you back that that's why you gain the weight back. So I think the title is gonna be, and it's an old, it's a cliche, it's not what you eat, it's what's eating you. Uh, when it comes to weight loss surgery, they're looking to the wrong organ. It's uh, it's not the stomach, it's the brain would be the subtitle. So it kind of explains it's not what you're eating, it's what's eating you, which is no, it's a cliche, but people will recognize it. And hopefully they'll read on to find out. And yeah, yeah. so, yeah. so I try to make, I try to make that, you know, uh, as, as interesting as possible. Cause you know, if, if they got 200 applications, let's say you're on a committee. They got 200 applications and there are four of you on a committee. You got 50 applications to go through. If, if that application doesn't grab you out of the gate, yeah. you know, it's in the no pile and you're going on at number 49 because you're not looking. I tell my clients, you're not, they're not looking for a reason to give you an audition. They're looking for the first thing they could do to, you know, find on that application where you, they don't like it and throw you in the no pile because they got to go through all of them. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's, that's where we've had success is in making it I, a friend of mine. Had another coach paid more money, paid a grand more than I charge, and they gave her. They cobbled together the frequently, you know, most of the applications have the same questions, different order. Okay. Um, so they cobbled together frequently asked question answers that she could fill in the blank on these applications. She applied eighty times, eighty. She called me crying. I said, Amy, it's a great idea. You have a bestseller on Amazon by the same title on the same subject in a very difficult category. It's not some random category. Yeah. Some, something's wrong. Send me the app. Send me the stuff you're, you know, putting in the application. So I looked at it and eyes dotted, T's crossed. But man, it was it was like breathing ether. It was just <laughs> I kept waking up face down a pool of my own saliva. So I said to her, <laughs> "Can I tinker with it?" She goes, "Yeah." So. I tinkered with it, gave it a little, you know, creative spin, made it sticky. Um, within five applications, she got TEDx, Beacon Street, and Boston. So again, that tells me the linchpin and this is the, the the creative element and continuing to apply and apply and apply and apply until somebody really likes. You know, I got my first one on my first try. Next two, I got because people saw my first one. The third one took five tries. Uh, fourth one took five tries fifth one as i mentioned took 16 tries so it's kind of a numbers game um you just can't you can't give yeah. up after a couple of applications and you have to i've never done one i could drive to i've flown to all of them um mm -hmm. you know because my clients want to do the you know they live in denver i want to do tedx mile high well so do i but you know it's okay i don't know if it's going to happen <laughs> yeah. maybe doing you know lake manalapan new jersey uh, or somewhere <laughs>
So, so for, for the six that you've done, are they all like similar or, or, or are they different topics? Uh, same topic, mental health. Mental health. Okay. So, all of you. Yeah. I, and I do some of my lived experience up front to give them an idea that I know what I'm talking about and why. Yeah. So that's the same. But from that point on, um, the third one was mental health. Let's see. Mental with benefits, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. Mm -hmm. Everybody I met who was not completely dysfunctional, who had a mental illness or two, had some superpower, good writer, singer, comedian, artist, athlete, politician. You know, they, they had these, they were very talented in other ways, in addition to having OCD, dyslexia, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought it can't be a coincidence. That was number three. Number four was suicide, the secret of my success. Counterintuitive. What? Mm -hmm. uh, dead man talking, a play on dead man walking. Something they, they recognize. Nice, dude. You're good at that stuff. It's good. You are. I, I'm telling you. Titles, yeah. subtitles, taglines are my thing. Yeah. So, um, again, they like the the idea and the title and subtitle so much. They called me and said, "You're not auditioning. You're going to go on." So that drove home the point. Okay, this is this is this, it, this is the hurdle you have to get over to even get close. You've got to. It's got to be creative enough and interesting enough that they read a great deal of the application and offer you an audition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 20 years writing for Leno, 35 years stand-up comedian and speaker. I, you know, I just, it's the way my brain, it's, it's my, one of my, I believe that even though I have depression and chronic suicidal ideation, that I'm not broken. I believe I was made this way because I believe my depression and suicidality is simply the flip side of the creativity and, you know, imagination and comic ability and timing it's all part of the same package. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, I, I put it, I put, somebody says, I need a title for my, my, uh, what I do. It's a client of mine. He does, um, what they call soft skills, corporate meetings. He teaches emotional intelligence, communication, relationships. Those are soft. Yeah. Soft skills. So I go, I'll, I'll have a tagline for you tomorrow morning. So I go to bed, I wake up, I lie in the dark for almost an hour every morning, just thinking, and it hit me. Anthony Metton. Hang on. Yeah, no, you're fine. And it hit me. His name is Anthony Metton. Anthony Metton, soft skills, concrete results. And I called him up and he goes, you thought of that in your fucking sleep? <laughs> I said, yes, I did. As a matter of fact, I could do it in my sleep. <laughs> so that's it will help him that that has, that has nothing to do with his Ted. Cause when I'm coaching Ted, I'm also helping him with speaker marketing. Mm -hmm. So that'll be his tagline on his website and his one pager, you know, um, right next to his name, mm -hmm. uh, soft skills, concrete results, short, sweet to the point. Um, so that's that they get the benefit of all yeah, those years of entertaining and, and, and being on stage and, so uh, what caught me, uh, one thing there was you said every more, did you say every morning for an hour? Yeah. You just, so is it right when you wake up, you take an hour and just think and like close your eyes? Yeah. What I do is uh, when I wake up, I have a double shot of espresso on the nightstand. I take the double shot. I lie back down. I put my eye shades back on my earplugs back in and I lie there in the dark and just see what my brain has to offer that morning. And it's, mm. it's sometimes half an hour, sometimes an hour. It's, I read an article online somewhere in Scandinavia. The author said, we have lost the ability to do nothing. Yeah. And so I just lie there and do abs. And don't, I don't, I don't force myself to think about something. I just wait and see what my brain. And sometimes it's, dude, you were supposed to call that guy yesterday. Oh shit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's sometimes it's banal and just something, or you forgot to pick this up at the grocery store. It's like my brain overnight reordered. Look, see what I've done. Oh, look, he skipped the Zoom. He's got to send an apology note. Okay. Uh, yeah. But most often it's something, you know, something creative. If, um, you know, it's, if I'm, if my, if I attach my brain to it, it, it will run until it, it spits out a couple, three ideas. It's like, it's like the, I said to somebody, it's like the alien in the first alien movie when the guy's chest. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. When if I come up with an idea, it wants out, and it wants out fucking now. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I have to text, email, call. Go. I got the idea. Unless you got to listen. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's just but part of my process. And and a psychiatrist said to me, the reason it works so well, Frank, is when you're lying down like that in the dark in that half awake state, the blood's moving back and forth between your hemispheres more easily of your brain than when you're standing up and walking around in the daytime. He said they think Einstein was like that all the time. The blood was going back and forth rapidly even when he was wide awake and walking around but that's what's happening is you're lying there and you know it's just kind of going back and forth easily and then mm. that, that half awake half yeah said so same reason when you're in the shower you have a good idea because the hot water's hitting you on the back of the neck it's increasing circulation of the brain and you're like yeah i could do that 100 uh, percent. that's because i was just gonna relate it to like i do morning walks slash runs um every morning and like that's kind of my meditation if you will of like every time I walk and this is what I tell people. It's like, if I ever am like trying to figure something out or I have like a, a problem to solve, I'll just let it go and I'll just go on a walk. And then it kind of like solves itself. Like it literally just, and I'm like, Oh, that's all it was. So I, I no longer like, I don't know, like beat my fist against the, the ground or whatever. I'm just like, okay, I can't figure it out right now. Maybe I'm tired. Maybe whatever. Let me just walk. And then literally the solutions just like fucking download into me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. It's almost like taking dictation. Like, okay, hold on. Uh, okay. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give that to me again. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of my clients worked on Madison Avenue for 20 years in the ad business. And she's a speaker, uh, an aspiring speaker. And she's got an online course on branding, a book called brain friendly branding. And it's hmm. all about how, the, the brain, the human brain has not changed more than 2% in the last 200,000 years. The, what's changed is, is the software. So what's happening is we're running iOS 14 on a Commodore 63. And yeah. So you need to appeal to those, the instincts of that Neanderthal. And they had one paramount instinct was survival. So if you're selling, you need to pitch to solve that survival problem. That's, that's her going to be her TEDx mm-hmm. and everything I learned in sales, everything I need to know in sales, I learned from a caveman, I think is the title of it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah actually, that's it's, awesome. probably, it's, it's probably the subtitle. It probably says brain friendly branding, which makes people go, what the hell is that? And then they got to read the subtitle. Everything I need to know about advertising, I learned from a caveman. Yeah. It's kind of, it is very much, um, like kind of what you do, it's it's obviously very unique, but it's it's like copywriting, right? Like yeah. the it's it's the the email, the headline. The only point of the headline is to have the person open the email, really, and then yeah. the only the only point of the first sentence is to have them read the second sentence. So like that's kind of what you're doing with the TEDx. It feels like is you're at least at, you're giving them a chance because the way people are typically filling it out, like you said, with 600 applicants, only 12 spots they're looking yep. for a reason to nullify you basically um, throw you in the no pile and i understand yeah. comics same way when i was when i was coaching comedians i go look you send them a videotape back then vcr you know vhs um don't put anything on that videotape because they're not looking for the first reason to book you in the comedy club they're looking for the first reason not to mm-hmm. so you know uh, if, you, if you drop an f-bomb uh it, when i get you a gig one f-bomb It'll keep you from getting a gig. So if you want to use it, you know, the word fuck, yeah. be the king of fucks. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Make it, you know, make yeah. that's what you do. Um, and there were comics who could only work on cable and clubs, uh, really well written, filthy comedy, you know, hysterical, filthy comedy. But but they chose that lane. That's going to be my lane. I'm not going to worry about being a clean comic. I'm just going to be. I'm gonna, and you know. Several friends of mine got a number of Showtime specials and things because that was their niche. They were hysterical and filthy. Just mm-hmm. so, yeah. So I think yeah. I mentioned this guy to you when we talked. Um, um, Robert Schimmel. Okay. Mm-hmm. A nebbish little Jewish fellow. Most of his stuff was self-deprecating, filthy, filth. <laughs> um, yeah. Is it? Somebody said to him, would you fight Mike Tyson for a million dollars? And he goes, a million dollars? I would actually get in the ring and blow Mike Tyson in front of my parents for a million dollars. <laughs> I mean, that was Bob. You know, it was just the way he was. Yeah. So, so, but he picked a lane. Political comics, that's a very 
that's a very distinct choice. Once you pick that lane, you've you've alien you've eliminated alienated fifty percent of the population because you're on one side of that divide or the other. Hundred so, percent. But if you if you can be the best at that, like uh, Lewis Black is amazing, then you know that more power to you. Yeah, I think that's um, the author. I think his I think his full name is Mark Manson. I think I think it is. And he he wrote the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And then he has like a whole. Have you heard Have you heard of that book or no? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So and he has multiple. I think he has three books now. They all have the word fuck in the title. So that's like like you said. It's like if you're gonna use it, then go all in. Like that becomes like your kind of like your brand. Like that's what it is. Yeah. I worked in radio one summer when the. The cruise ships decided to stop using comedians. They changed their mind after the pastors rose up. But uh, so I went to work because I'm I'm a comedian. Otherwise, I'm just functionally unemployable. Um, so <laughs> I thought I've been on air. I'm, I'm sure I can sell radio ads because I'm in both chambers. I know a lot of people and I can write and voice the ads. So I got the job, uh, you know, as a radio guy. And there's a client who does uh, bathroom and kitchen and refinishing and their thing was they don't take then they're not one of those three bid the commercial i wrote was okay now you're getting you're gonna have your kitchen remodeled so you can take your dad's advice okay son what you do is you get three bids you throw out the high you throw out the low and you take the one in the middle i go is that really a good i mean if you were looking for a heart surgeon would you get three bids throw out the high throw out the low and take the guy in the middle no <laughs> you want somebody who knows what the hell they're doing yeah. and what we're doing there is we're eliminating people who have to have three bids. We do not want them to call. It's called a disqualifier. So Gary Vaynerchuk, because he is profane and doesn't give a fuck. You know, one of my speaker friends said he's losing business. And I said, he doesn't care because the people that hate him, hate him. But the people who love him are fanatic and, and he's laughing all the way to the bank. You know, if you're offended by Vaynerchuk, you are not his audience. You are not his client. And so it's a disqualifier. You don't want to work with anybody who's, you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. So. No, no, you're 100% right. I, I love Gary. And um, I think he even talks about that, actually, in some of his stuff. But, um, you know, as he would say, he doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it is. no. And, you know, when you book him, you know what you're going to get. It's not like he is, you know, he's a stealth, dirty, you know, speaker. You know, he's really clean and he comes in. That's what amazed me about Hollywood. When they hire somebody like um, the guy that created the family guy, what's his name, to MC one of the awards banks. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know who you're talking about. I don't know his name, but I, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, and he comes in and he does what he does. And they're, they're surprised and offended. And he said, were they expecting me to, change somehow after i got the engagement i because he, he you know he ribbed some people in the audience him pretty hard and oh oh <laughs> uh you know it's you you have to you know buyer beware i mean if you get a book vanner chuck when i worked in the yeah. comedy club if dice clay i was a doorman if dice clay was headlining an older couple walks up i would say to him you guys uh, coming here to see um andrew dice clay who <laughs> so I said, well, you know, you might want to, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to discourage you from going, but I think you'd, you'd, I think you'd enjoy another night, another comedian more so than Mr. Clay. Because <laughs> Hickory me Doc, she was down there sucking. My, you know. <laughs> so I would, I would warn them off if I thought perhaps, you know. Yeah. You have any good, um, so, so like 30 years in comedy, right? about 30 yes so 30 years what 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 are some highlights there and any wild like um uh what do they call it uh sticklers or whatever or hecklers they call it hecklers, hecklers. oh yeah. yeah um again again as part of my wiring um people ask me after i hammer a heckler really hard hey how'd you think up that heckler line you know what i didn't think it when you heard it for the first time i was hearing it for the first time it just came screaming out of the back of my head i have no idea where the fuck it came from <laughs> um, I'm doing a club in Raleigh, North Carolina, Charlie Goodnights, one of the places where I started. And there's a drunk woman down front. And if she finally got so obnoxious, they were throwing her out. They're dragging her to the front door. Right before she goes out, she must have heard something sounded like her name because drunks are voice activated. And she turns back to me and she goes, fuck you. And I took a beat and I went, no, not even for practice. And the <laughs> audience 
standing ovation, guys coming up and high-fiving me. I have no idea where that line came from. I'm doing a carnival show. And Carnival, the late night show, they come for a verbal fist fight. They get drunk and they want to take the comedian down. I've got I got comic friends who won't work send Pedro down to, you know, like Mexico and back because it's just the late night shows are brutal. So I get on stage, I grab the microphone. The guy yells before I even said anything. You suck. So you can't let that kind of thing go. So I waited, I waited a beat and I go, yeah, and you fucking swallow. And <laughs> again, standing ovation, high fives. Uh, couldn't do any wrong after that. And it just left a smoking hole where he was sitting. So, and where'd that come from? I, I didn't think it before I said it. It just came screaming out of my mouth. Fortunately, it landed right. Everybody yeah. thought I was, you know, the king. <laughs> so, but, but I think it's, I, I tell people I can teach you to write stand up, which I've done. I can teach you to perform stand up, which I've done. I cannot teach you to process the incoming information like that. I can't make it so that when you hear, um, you know, um, you suck. That the next thing out of your mouth is going to be, yeah, you <laughs> fucking swallow. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I'd never said that out loud in any show anywhere. It just can't. It just whatever you know, computers in there. Just you know, looking through the files. What uh, he said, you suck. Hold on. Okay, to go. Yeah. You fucking swallow. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's. I, I believe it's uh, that mental illness is actually a combination of mental illness and mental ableness. You just have to find the thing or things you do really well and embrace those. Treat the other, but embrace, you know, the things that you and yeah. Google hires people on the spectrum. 30 Fortune 500 companies are now hiring people on the spectrum for their one very specific skill and they're paying them handsomely. Oh, really? What's this about? Yeah. Well, you know, let's say it's a it's a quality control thing. And somebody's got to sit there and watch these things go by and look for one particular tab out of place. And some of these folks on the spectrum, that's a very comfortable situation for them. They can sit there for eight hours watching stuff go by, you know? Um, and whereas a, a neuronormal person, how long are you going to last? Staring at a, oh, at maybe a five, five minutes for me, maybe. Yeah, but for them, it's just, you know, it's like, okay, I'm fine. And, the, and they, it's like dyslexics. Dyslexics have a, a better um, peripheral vision, and they also have the amazing anomaly, some strange reason, amazing ability, I'm sorry, to find the ano anomaly in anything. The joke I wrote for my TEDx was, never play Where's Waldo for money with a dyslexic, you're going to lose. Because you're going <laughs> to open the book and they're going to go, he's right there, you can't see that? So that's one of the things that comes with dyslexia is this better peripheral vision and the ability to pick out the anomaly. So why not make them a drone pilot? Flying over Afghanistan, everything is one color brown or another. And what looks like a rock to most people, he may, he may go, um, that's not a rock. That's the yeah. lid on a bunker because yeah. of something about it drew his attention. So my idea is take kids like that and steer them. If you got OCD, you know, steer them toward engineering, accounting, architecture, where they, they reward precision and attention to detail and the kid is wired for it. He can't not have a, you know, an attention to detail because that's the way he's wired. Mm -hmm. So Got that, it. Was that, the, makes sense. that was the premise that's of it. the mental with benefits. That was the point is to reframe things for kids. Okay. Yeah. You have a mental illness, but here's what adults never tell you. You also have a couple of mental ablenesses that your peers can't touch. hundred so. percent. I've actually thought, not uh that's interesting i didn't think about it in that way but um close it, it like when you're younger i feel like kind of like the true you comes out a little bit easier because you're not you know you haven't been like i don't know what do you want to call um fucked up from society i don't know whatever you want to call it <laughs> like yeah so like the true you comes through so it's like if the teachers were more trained from like not just like a textbook but a psychological thing like maybe they would have picked up for you when you were younger that like Hey, this guy would be a good comedian because, like, maybe when you were younger, you were very talkative in class or something, or very outgoing. Like, I don't know. So, and if the teacher kind of, you know, watched their students in a different way, not just like, did you get an A or B on the test, but like, yeah. okay, this person fucking loves math. This person is like always disrupting. Like, they're going to be more of a people person. So, and they can start to like help steer so that by the time the kid's like 18, they don't get to that point and they're like, oh, I'm just going to college because that's what you do. Because by yeah, 18, well, you, you could kind of know. 
Like you could know yeah. a lot about yourself if, if adults paid attention to it. I don't know. Well, at the end of the TED talk, I said to the audience, okay, Frank, that's really interesting. What are we supposed to do with that? I said, well, you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to make the IEP, the individual education plan, truly individual. If you've got a kid with dyslexia, he does not belong in the STEM program, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. That's just pages and pages of numbers and letters rolling around. Yeah. But, you know, humanities, um, multi, they're great at multi-level complex tasks. I mean, steer them toward the, you know, those sorts of things. Now, if a kid's got OCD, for God's sakes, put him in the STEM program. Every one of those, those disciplines, every problem in there has one answer. That's perfect. There's just one right answer, which is perfect for somebody who, you know, is into precision. So a friend of mine on the ships, he traveled around and, and rated the musicians on the ships, you know, for raises and stuff. He taught high school band um, horns. And he said, my best students were the ones with ADD, ADHD. The problem was you strap them in a chair. First 10 minutes, they get better. The next 40 minutes, complete waste of time because they can't focus. So he said, on a whim, I bought an egg timer. And I said to the kid, okay, look, I'm going to set the egg timer for 10 minutes. You're going to practice your scale for, scales for 10 minutes. And when the egg timer goes off, you're going to practice your breathing for 10 minutes. And then when the egg timer goes off, we're going to practice those two pieces you're doing at the concert this weekend. Then we're going to start again. So it's in 10 minute bursts. Mm -hmm. And he said the improvement was amazing because the, the kid wasn't spending 80% of his energy trying to sit still and not say anything. He was, you know, he's focused for 10 minutes. He could focus for 10 minutes and 10 minutes. It, you know, he just stumbled yeah. on it. And, but so I think not only the curriculum be, you know, individual, the teaching techniques, teach you know teach the way people want to learn each person learns best Absolutely. some are visual some are auditory some are you know some so uh really la last thing i want to ask just because we only touched on it a little bit is like how did you get through it so and i'm sure you talk about this in your ted talk but like um when you were considering suicide how did you what was it like paint the picture for us and then how did you um get through it just so if anybody listening, like I, I'm, I'm assuming it would help them to kind of hear how, how you got through it. Sure. It's um, not an unusual story, but it's I had a million dollar life insurance policy. Mm -hmm. And and most people who are suicidal feel like they're a burden. It's called burdensomeness. You know, the world would be better off without. Me. And I was literally worth more dead than alive to my wife. We just lost everything. So she'd be broken hearted after I was gone, but she would not be broke. She could, you know, she could keep the farm, pay off all the bills. She's not going to be able to retire, but she's not going to have to worry about money for a long time. The catch was, I didn't know how long I'd had the policy because I had a two year suicide clause. You kill yourself in the first two years, they don't pay anything. Two years in a day, million bucks. So I call my insurance agent, he goes, yeah, you, you had it 22 months and no, don't fucking do it. Because he'd had that conversation before. Somebody called up. Is the insurance past the two year? Yes. Next thing you know, he's delivering, you know, the benefit check to the widow or widower. So he, you know, he, he said, Frank, you know, when you said that to me, I realized you weren't asking how long you had the policy. You're asking for permission to kill yourself. And he goes, and I didn't know what to say. So he said, I just said a quick prayer and thought, hopefully whatever I say next will have an impact. And I said, Graham, it did. You said, don't fucking do it. So, yeah and i didn't wow. and and two months passed by and i don't remember i didn't mark it off on the calendar you know i killed myself in 15 days um fortunately bankruptcy went through phone call stopped and things got better and i don't even recall when my next thought of taking my own life from the insurance money was um, mm -hmm. so that's that's what saved me the life insurance policy not being at the two-year mark saved me otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation wow dude that's life insurance for real. <laughs> yes. That's the real life insurance. Well, and here's the good news. Here's the good news <laughs> in that story. Eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. I was not. I was in the two. Uh, nine out of 10 people who are suicidal give hints in the week leading up to an attempt. I was number 10. I wasn't going to give anybody a hint. I was just going to take my own life. Mm. But if eight out of 10 are ambivalent, nine out of 10 give hints, that means we can save the vast majority of people if we just know what to look and listen for and step in. Because what that tells me is they want you to step in and notice something and step in and interrupt. And so that's yeah. what I teach when, when I keynote, I teach signs, symptoms of depression and thoughts of suicide, what to do, what to say, how to find resources, 
So that way, because you hear people say this all the time, he killed himself. He never gave any indication, no hints. So we had no idea. Well, you know what? Nine out of 10 times, somebody's going to give you a hint. You just have to know what you're looking for or listening for. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why I do what I do is because, you, you know, it's, it's the most preventable cause of death on the planet. You, and you don't have to be a clinician to save somebody. You just have to care and know what to look for and step in. What are some of the things that you look for? Well, for depression, um, has trouble getting up in the morning, rallies in the afternoon. So let's say you've been doing Zooms in the morning and, and the guy's always late. And you bumped it to three in the afternoon and he's there waiting for you when you get there. Like, odd. <laughs> it's always late in the morning, rallies in the afternoon. Um, eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, can't sleep. Here's one you can see on Zoom. They let their personal hygiene go. You know, there's COVID casual and then there's I'm depressed casual. Hair's a little dirty, clothes aren't quite so clean because yeah. maybe they can't get out of bed to run a little wash and hit the showers. That's something. So the question comes up, what do you say? Well, here's what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't tell you how many times. So uh, how, actually, of- what, what do you do though? Like how, how would you, if, oh. if you see the signs? Yeah. Like what uh, would be the best way to approach? If it's depression, I would say, look, um, I'm here for you and I mean it. And I, I know you're not lazy, crazy or self-absorbed. I know, I know that depression is actually a mental illness. Here's the good news. With time and treatment, things will get better. And I'll take the time and I'll help you get the treatment. And here's the tough one. You have to ask them at this point, are you having thoughts of suicide? And if you can't ask them, you find somebody who can. And there's no mm-hmm. wives tale. You should never mention the S word, suicide in front of somebody who's depressed. And I love this. It might give them the idea. Suicide, what a great idea. Why didn't <laughs> I think of that? Trust me, it's crossed their mind. Yeah. So now let's say they're not forthcoming um, with their thoughts of suicide. How would you know? Well, if you catch them talking about death and dying or Googling death and dying or death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork, their writing, their music, they're getting their affairs in order. They're giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. And a really dangerous counterintuitive one is they've been depressed forever. And all of a sudden they are happy beyond measure for no apparent reason. And you're happy because thank God they're happy. Well, the reason may be they've chosen time, place and method, and they know their pain is finite and they're happy because they know it's going to come to an end. So Mm. now let's say, if they, if they say they are suicidal, you say, well, you have a plan. And if they have a plan, tell me what your plan is. And if it's detailed, then you need to get them on the phone with a suicide prevention lifeline. Or nowadays for younger people, they have a text line. You text the word help to 741-741. There'll probably be somebody on the other end, roughly the same age. But let's say the plan is not well formed. But just, you know, I'm going to kill myself, but I'm not sure how. My next question is, um, just again, flat out, well, are you going to kill yourself? And if they go, no, I say, all right, tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever still keeping them here. My family, my friends, my pets, my siblings, whatever mm-hmm. it is, make them give voice to that. Now, you only call 911 when they're in immediate danger to themselves or somebody else. And I had a... a a uh, Zoom the other day with somebody who had, they had done that. They'd call the police. And man, the person they called the police on had to go in front of a judge. There was an involuntary detention order, three days lockdown in a psychiatric facility. And the woman hasn't spoken to any of those people again, but, you know, she's still alive. So, you know, it's possible you're going to lose a friend. They may unfriend you on Facebook after you saved their life, but yeah that's, that's, that's okay that, that, yeah that, that's fine i can live with it that yeah. i can live with <laughs> i can live with that <laughs> yeah no that's incredible advice man um so i want to leave it to you like uh where can people stay in touch with you i appreciate you coming on the show um what's the best way uh there's the mental health comedian the mental health comedian.com and authors I'm a co-author on a four book series on men's mental health, kind of a chicken soup for the soul, 12 guys, 12 stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, each one has, you know, it's like uh, first 500 words, things are great. Second 500 words, things go to hell. Third 500 words, here's how I'm coping. 
-hmm. men told us we want real stories, real men, real problems and how they're coping, really. So we, we, it's going to be one book, but it turned into a thousand pages. So we decided to make four and we made it look like an automobile owner's manual. So oh. guys will pick it up. Um, it's got a guy's head on the front and the top's off and the guy's leaning in with a wrench and a flashlight. Um, and it's got all kinds of car metaphors. You know, you need to have routine maintenance, have to have a pit crew in case the wheels come off for you. My favorite is, don't you wish the men in your life had a mental check engine light? Light goes off. You go to the mental mechanic, they put you up on the lift and go, Bob, no wonder you're depressed. You're two quarts low on serotonin. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's that, you know, that car, car brain metaphor. Mm -hmm. uh, first book is basic mechanics. Second is advanced, um, uh, advanced, um, you know, routine maintenance. Each one has a theme. Each one has 12 stories. And if you go to my website, thementalhealthcomedian.com and put in an email address, you can download the first book. I recorded it for Audible, but I, I got oh, them to make great. me an MP. I got an MP3 on there. It's free. It's me unabridged for the first, you know, reading the first book out loud. So awesome. You're welcome. Welcome to go and download it. Yeah. And I'll eventually have all four up there as I record them. Perfect. And then if somebody, if any of our listeners are interested in a TEDx, it's your TEDxcoach.com. Yeah. If you go there and put an email address in, you get a free PDF that says these six things you could do to kill your chances of landing a TEDx talk. <laughs> I like that. Because, yeah. Because everybody tells you what to do, but again, you and I've talked about, they're not looking for all the good in the app. They're looking for the first bad thing. So mm -hmm. it's six mistakes to avoid six things you can do if you avoid them to make it easy for them to throw you in the no pile right away. Mm -hmm. So perfect. Thank you again, man. I appreciate you coming on. Hey, listen, uh, you got a lot of authors. People ask me, is it a good way as an author to, yeah, you know, you, especially if you want to speak behind the book, makes a great demo video. You can, what you can do is you can grab it off the, grab it off their page and slice and dice it, make a sizzle reel. Um, you can't sell your book from the stage or back of the room, but you can talk about stuff in your book, which would encourage people if they like what, you know, they learn from you in that 18 minutes, they may go out and buy the book. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's, you have to be very careful, nothing commercial from the stage, but I help people frame that so that it doesn't sound like they're pitching the book. They're just sharing the ideas in the book. Got it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Cause I know with uh, Ted there, it, it, it is like pretty much just value. Right. But if, like you said, if you say parts of the book, then people kind of get the point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, dep depending on the book, there may be some really good actionable information in the book. Yeah. And so normally what it is, first third, your story, second third is what you learned in all your troubles. And the third third is now here's what I'm going to teach you. And you pick a half a dozen things from the book action items, how to's, able to's, that they can walk right out and start doing. And you know, if they like what you've said, they might be willing to, you know, they're Google, you find you, go to Amazon, you know, find your book. And that's the, the idea is that maybe sell some more. Also for an author, if you want to be a speaker, it's a great video demo to get speaking engagements. Oh yeah. To, and, to, and to raise your fee. Um, my, my speakers all start off at $5,000 plus travel. That's kind of the entry level now. Yeah. Because people figure, you know, if, you, if you're charging five grand, you must know what the hell you're talking. Yeah. No, 100%. Perfect, man. Thank you again. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Tyler. The Authors Unite show is sponsored by AuthorsUnite.com. Your one-stop shop for becoming a profitable author and maximizing your impact. 